start today, I was thinking of a particular verse in Ecclesiastes that we've used over the years to talk about how we're all in this together. Whether we belong in Christ or whether we're in the world, somehow we're linked and we're all in this together. And Solomon says this, he says, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance, what? Happens to us all. I think of the Kohelet or the teacher who is this King Solomon who is writing this at the end of his life And I certainly uh, look upon it as a retrospective of how he's viewing his life on what he's looking back on. And looking at that verse right there, when he was alive and when he was king and when he was at his peak form, he certainly didn't believe that. Because for him, the race was to the swiftest. The war was to the mighty. The one who had the most was the mostest, and he really, truly believed that. And that's how it is with this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this realm. If, we're, if you take it and couch it all in biblical times, the, the kingdom of, of here, the kingdom of here and now, had no higher uh, uh, peak or form than Solomon's day. We often say that, that Israel was at her economic peak, and she was. She was never richer. Well, let's put it this way. The king was never richer. And he was a perfect example. That was a perfect example on what gets stuff done in this kingdom. Power, wealth, having more than anyone else. But what doesn't it address? What doesn't it address in this kingdom? It could be the people that God has in mind the most. The people that this kingdom leaves behind. I've been uh, exploring that in our newsletter, in the devotions in our newsletter. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who need. The kingdom of this world leaves them behind. And that's where we're headed today, if you will, when we begin to look at the three angels' message. That's where we're going, is, is again, it's this idea um, going, going back, and I, I hesitate to have to review much further than just to say this, is that all of our weeks in studying these two churches at the end time, the church of the lamb that was slain and the church of the beast, remember, always remember in, in, in our minds what distinguishes them from another. And what distinguishes them from another is number one, the gods themselves, right? The gods that they worship themselves. The lamb that was slain and the beast are two completely different gods. Yes, I understand that. But also it's how those gods exercise their authority, and then ask for what? For our worship. That's the bit difference between the two. So last week, the first angel's message reminded us that the true God, the God of the church of the lamb that was slain, of which you and I are a member in this end times, he asks for authority based on one thing and one thing alone, is that he is what? That he is creator. 
And he created the heavens, the earth, all that was in them, the sea and the springs of water. And he did it in six days. And remember, in, in the language of creation, what is the governance that he decided that he was going to rule on? And it's right there in the language of creation. Creation gives. Creation lives for a purpose outside of itself. The trees give seeds and fruit. The sky gives light. The waters give life. It's right there in the language of the creator. And he gives a temple in time, if you will, every seventh day to be able to walk and talk with this creator. To choose to, to always choose to. And when we spend that time every day and then that special day, what is it that we then become to develop? What is it we come to know? We come to know then how truly to become like him. What it means to treat others the way that he has treated us. Are we gonna be perfect every Sabbath when we hit the ground running on Sunday and go and try and love people as we've been loved? Have anybody accomplished that perfectly this week? No. But he says, you still can walk and talk with me. And it's the only way that we come to know this. So the force or the authority, if you will, force, slip of the tongue, it includes no force. It includes no fear. It includes no coercion. And that's what this, what it leads this second angel uh, to come to. The second angel then has a message after we have the information about the first from the first angel that we should worship God simply because he's our creator and that he loved us, right? Simply that, that's what, that's what everything about creation, that's what everything about the seventh day Sabbath, that's what everything about our doctrine tells us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the creator told me so. So the second angel then steps up because we have a problem. We have a problem living in the end time. Actually, mankind has had a problem trying to live by the creator's rules and laws and love ever since the fall, we've had a problem. And it especially is more of a problem in the end time apparently because a second angel has to step up and say, okay, now that you have heard what the true power is from the true God, his true church, what they need to know, now we need to call out the power that we're all tempted to use, no matter what church we belong to. And another angel, a second one, followed saying what? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The power that is being called out by the second angel, the power that the first angel only hinted at by saying that this was it, right? That if we are going to be in the true church, we only worship God based on the message of the first angel. So the power of, this, of the beast, the power of the church that isn't authentic is now called out here. And for the first time in all of Revelation, that power is given a name. The power is what name? Babylon. Fallen, fallen is who? Is Babylon. Now, the word Babylon 
has a long, long storied history in all of scripture. And I love exploring the word Babylon. I think I've taken you on this journey a couple of times before. I've tried to abbreviate it a little bit today. But the root of the word Babylon goes way, way back, all the way to Genesis 6. You know how far back it goes in Genesis 6? It goes back to just before the flood. Because you have to have the context of the earth before the flood. Ten generations after the fall, just ten generations is all it took to completely corrupt God's creation. That creation that the first angel uh, told us about, it took less than ten generations. You have to remember that the first generation uh, uh, presented the first murder. The only two brothers living on the entire planet and one had to murder the other. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with what? Violence, filled with violence. Creation is down to eight heartbeats. The ability for humanity to walk and talk with the creator is down to eight heartbeats. There's only eight people left on the entire planet who have even an avenue still open to listen to the word of God. And I could argue by the actions of that family after the flood, maybe, just maybe, it was only their father who had just a little bit of, of, of an avenue. Noah was the one that listened. That was it. If in 10 generations, humanity is nearly wiped out, in other words, they have become nearly extinct. And by the way, they only became extinct by violence. They only became extinct by devouring one another. If it only took 10 generations to wipe out the entire of humanity down to eight heartbeats, how long is it gonna take before these eight heartbeats are gone? Even if they die of natural causes back then, it's only another millennia, and what? Humanity's through. So I told you before that it may not sound like it on the surface, but the flood was an act of mercy. The flood wasn't about punishing people who didn't believe in God. The flood was about buying time for God to be able to reach humanity. And he did. He buys time. And then something happens after the flood. We're told that the land, we're, we're actually, Noah and his sons and their wives have, given, have been given the same commandment that was given Adam and Eve after the fall. Go and fill the earth. Go and multiply and fill the earth, if you will. And, and so we, we look at the, when you look at the genealogies, and I didn't put them all down, but I'll, just these key verses, but when you look at the genealogies, the brother of, of Japheth is Ham, Ham had a son named Cush. So this would be, this son that I'm about to mention, this would be Noah's grandson. So now we're just two generations in, right? We're just two generations in. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a what? A mighty warrior. In fact, that becomes a proverb to go all throughout Israel's history for the next 4,000 years. If you wanna be mighty, you need to be a mighty warrior like who? Like Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He becomes a legend. He becomes a proverb. Like it's said, a mighty hunter. 
I have a theory about this. It isn't, it isn't something that came to me in a dream, but I just look. All I look is at, at what the scripture tells us about him. And by the way, that's all we know about him, what it says right there, except what he did with what God gave him and apportioned him after the flood. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nivea. Babel, Babel. There's the first time you see the root of our word, what? Babylon. He called his city that. Now, the thing about these ancient times is that we don't know for sure. It is so long ago, it's so far removed, but we could at least assume that each of these are cities probably within a state, if you will, and, and, and then the Bible begins to refer to it as a nation depending on the earth's rules as to what a nation looks like. Do you know how we determine whether or not a community is a town, village, or city? By how what? By how big it gets, right? But the very first one that Nimrod establishes is one that he calls what? Bavel. Babel. And somewhere within that state, there is a, the land, if you will, somewhere within there, the entire land is called Shinar. Now, what's interesting about Nimrod is that Nimrod has been given what? The beginning of his kingdom was in the coastlands, outside of the coastlands. The beginning of his kingdom were these communities, was the land of Shinar. But look what the very next verse says. From that land, he did what? He went into Assyria and he built Nineveh. Guess what? You can look all through and every one of Noah's relatives are perfectly happy with what was given them. Nimrod is the only one that leaves what was given him and goes and takes what he wants from somewhere else. I think that's how he got his nickname. How about you? What makes him a legend is that when he sees what he wants, he goes and he takes it. And he begins to do that. He begins to conquer, then, if you will. He's the very first human to begin to live by the rules of this kingdom. He who has the most is the what? Is the mostest. Only the strong survive. Only the strong thrive. Not might makes right might is right. You with me? So that's my little journey back to there. Now, you step ahead to the next time you see these words, you step ahead just a a chapter or so, and it says, the people saying to themselves, they said, come let us build ourselves a what? A city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered on the, upon the face of the earth, right? It's the next mention of this. This is what happened in the land. God says he makes a promise to all of his people after the flood. Don't worry, I will not do this again. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a promise that I will not ever do this again. The people get together and decide they don't trust that little admonition. Nimrod gets his people together and says, you know what? We need to make sure of this. 
we need to make sure that nothing happens here. So they build a what? They build a tower. Now what's interesting about the tower is that when you get to the end of this narrative, the tower was actually called Bavel. It was named after that first city that he finds. Now, I, I, I know that we get confused a little bit with English and it has something to do with the confusion of the languages. And I've heard people even preach and teach that Babel means that they were babbling and that's why they couldn't understand each other. But actually, Bav El is two Hebrew words put together that literally mean the doorway to God. And I have to tell you, archeologists have dug all through what would have been Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian worship, and they have found thousands of these towers, these, if you will, these pyramids, these pyramids that aren't uh, you know, like this, they're round. And every one of them has this spiral staircase that you walk around and go up, and when you get to the very top, there's a doorway that the priest would walk into. Zoroastrian worship is filled with these towers. And guess what that doorway is called? The doorway to God. I'm not sure about the people, but Nimrod wasn't building this tower just to stay higher than the floodwaters. Nimrod was looking for a way to get to heaven because the only way I can make sure that that God is not going to kill me is that I'm gonna have to kill him. And by the way, over the years and centuries that it all evolved, do you know what the number one God in that pantheon was, who he became? Nimrod. There is full of um, uh, annals, if you will. There are records upon records of ancient, of ancient worship. Zoroastrian, Mesopotamian, all of them, who hold Nimrod as the pantheon, atop of the pantheon of their gods. They worship Nimrod. Why? Because he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The tower isn't just about not trusting him. The tower is about, okay, I don't trust you and I will do the only thing that this kingdom allows me to do with people that I don't trust. How can we make sure that somebody we don't trust hurts us? How do we make absolutely sure of it? It's not a trick question. We kill them. Here now lies the root of the word Babylon. See, the next time you see it is a few hundred years, actually a couple thousand years later, when it says that the king of Assyria brought people from where? From Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and settled in its cities. The next time we see the word Babylon in scripture is that now it's part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire comes around just a, a, a couple hundred years before Babylon becomes an actual empire itself, but that's the next time that we see it. It is part of the Assyrian Empire. Fast forward a couple, and, and, and by the way, that's how we know this, is that after the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrians took all of Israel captive, that is the, the 10 northern tribes, if you will, it took them captive, leaving Judah, but we know what happens to Judah in the next 200 years, don't we? They're taken into captivity by guess who? Babylon. Somewhere in that 200 years, Babylon becomes its own independent nation. 
And the reason we know is the next time the word Babylon is used is 2 Kings 20, 12. And it says, at that time, Baradach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. They're now their own nation. In fact, they've established their own diplomatic status with King Hezekiah of Judah. We know what happened after that, don't we? Hezekiah welcomes them, welcomes the emissaries. He shows them everything that he has, which means all they do is take notes because in, in, a, in a couple hundred years, guess what's gonna happen? Babylon will be in the place of Assyria as the ruling civilization of the world, maybe not the entire world, but certainly most of the civilized world, and they will come and they will take Judah captive. And this is when the word Babylon begins also to take a form and begin to, I guess, inform us more of what this word really means and what's behind its history. Why does John use it to describe the end time power that the false church uses to get people to worship? And it begins here. See, at the beginning of the actual captivity, when Nebuchadnezzar comes the third time, sacks Jerusalem, takes everybody captive, in other words, it's full-blown now, just the same way that the Assyrians did. Daniel begins to write his book this way. In the third year of the, king, uh, of the reign of King Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of who? King of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Like I said, it, it is the world power now. Not to get off track, but in, in, in Daniel 8, we, you know, it even tells how Babylon did this. It, it, it shows and, and, and how it conquered. It conquered uh, Lydia, it conquered Egypt, and, and I mean, it, it conquered everybody. Babylon now has taken Judah into captivity. And the Lord gave, and this is the thing to remember, is that why are they in captivity? Because the Lord gave them into their hands. He's been warning him about this for years. Captivity is what it's all about. The Lord gave Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of, what? Shinar. 2,000 years later, Shinar is still associated with what? With worship of the divine the main place that Babylon had a temple where they were taking all of the, uh, the defeated nation's God's materials, they're taking them to a temple. At ba- I, I just, I picture this place at Shinar. I wonder, I, I wonder even after a couple thousand years, if possibly, just possibly, maybe there are a few foundation stones of the tower still there. And every nation that came along and occupied that land built a temple on top of those stones. A perfect homage, if you will, to the power of Babylon. By the way, that's the next time you see the the, uh, use of the word Shinar is right here. When Nebuchadnezzar goes to build the statue of himself, it says it was on the plain of Dura. You know where that is? It's right in the middle of Shinar. So what happens here though, what happens here is that all of a sudden now, this earthly power 
even if we didn't know anything about the history before Daniel begins to write, this earthly power now begins to at least hint that there is a divine uh, authority over all this. I'm not sure that's the best word, but do you get what I'm getting at? This isn't about nation upon nation anymore. This isn't about just nations going after each other. These are ancient nations and what they used to believe gave them the power to take what they wanted and this was it. That they believed that if they were able to conquer other people who had other gods, it wasn't just that I defeated you because my army is superior or my my strategy was superior. It was because my God is better than your God. And now all of a sudden, Babylon is the first one to put that in this kind of language. Let me see if this helps with you. Young men, he, he's speaking of Daniel, uh, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Daniel, and I forget the third one. Do I have it? I'm not sure if I have it or not. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, okay? Daniel and his friends, that's what their names are. He takes them in and he says this about them. This is what he's going to do with them. Uh, real quick, all we know about those four, peop- four, four kids, these four teenagers, if you will, is that they were of the priestly class. As a matter of fact, they may not even be in the priestly class. They might be in the kingly class. They might be uh, relatives of Joachim, princes, if you will. But listen to what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do with them. He chose them because they were without what? Without physical defect. They were handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were brought to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the the magicians, if you will, the sorcerers, the astrologers. They are the, the class that helps Nebuchadnezzar with his divine part. You with me? Nebuchadnezzar is king. He's a military commander and ruler. A genius, by the way. He conquered the world at age 22. And he, and he came up with the idea of not destroying a nation in order to conquer it. Why not just uh, occupy it? Because then he can take what the nation has to give. And this is what he's taking advantage of. Israel has a crop, if you will, of pretty smart guys. By the way, how far along do people like this get in our world? No physical defect, good looking and smart. How far, how far do they get in our world? Where? They're at the top of the food chain, aren't they? This is why Nebuchadnezzar picks them. But the language that Daniel uses, I don't think he uses by accident. When you hear about picking men for a position in a divine realm and they can't have any physical defect, what do you think of? What do you hear? That was the same requirement to be a priest in Israel, remember? Only the Levites that were without physical defect were were the ones that were allowed to serve God as a priest. Nebuchadnezzar isn't putting together military advisors. He is making his own legion of priests. And why does he need a priest 
In the, to go further on in Daniel uh, 1, he tells you, the palace master gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar needs priests is because he's their new God. He's taken these Isra uh, Israeli or, or Judean worshipers of the Judean God and he's making them priests of his church. He's renaming them as a God would do, which God named humanity when? At creation. Do you see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing? And to go even further, to go even further, he then tells them what to eat. And by the way, Daniel's defiance in all of this, his defiance is this. He says, um, he says um, first of all, when he, the first time that he, uh, right here, this verse right here, Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. I, I, I don't have time to go completely into it, but actually we know for a fact that there's no way that he called him Belteshazzar. He really named him Belshazzar because Belshazzar literally means Bel is my God. Okay, and besides Nebuchadnezzar, in the top realm, uh, there are two top gods, if you will, in the Babylonian pantheon, and one of them is Belshazzar. What Daniel did was try to give a hint to any Judean who may be listening to this, to any Hebrew who might be listening to this. They all know that that's not his name. What he did is he put the T in, he put the extra syllable in that made the name, name mean nothing. Daniel's hint to us is Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has divine power to change my name that my creator gave me. And so when he gives the hint to us, he says, the name means nothing. Why? Nebuchadnezzar's not a god. By the way, he did it with all three of their names. That's why he has no problem in the book referring to himself by the Babylonian name he was given because the Babylonian name he was given, he made irrelevant by who he was going to serve. And the whole idea, again, about giving them what to eat, just to give you a hint real quick, when he says vegetables and water, when he asks for that, He's going back to creation. The word that he uses for vegetables is the same root that is used in Genesis when it says plant bearing seeds. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you think you've recreated me. You think you've conquered me and my God and recreated me. No. So Daniel is asked to stand by what? By faith. Let me ask you this. Daniel's faith, where he stands from, all he knows for right now, all he's given us in, in chapter one of the book is to say that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's our God, but he's not. But who's in, who's in power right now? Do you think that you could stand in the middle of captivity where a king like Nebuchadnezzar holds your very life in his hands? How, do you, how many people do you think that he has slaughtered and massacred and tortured before we got here? Does Daniel know that the only reason he's there is because Nebuchadnezzar thinks he can serve him? He spared his life for only one reason. Otherwise, he would have done what he did to every other man, either killed every other man as a threat to his empire or enslaved him, right? So if God comes to Daniel right now and says, don't worry, Daniel, Babylon is fallen, is that true? Is the reality true that Babylon has fallen? No. 
It's not. As a matter of fact, Babylon is going to be at that top for another 200 years. But Daniel is asked to live as if, right? He's asked to live as if Babylon has fallen. Daniel, by faith, lives in the as if. Nebuchadnezzar, though, is putting forth the the old, old adage that the world establishes what kind of power you have and whether or not it's divine. And what Nebuchadnezzar is, is, is completely bringing forward is that it's the land. It's the land. It's the nation. Every time I say land now, I, I, I put this uh, slash on it and say nation. It's the nation that becomes divine. Why? Because it looks like it's winning. It looks like it's been blessed by God. And every old uh, uh, ancient people all believe that. If you had land, if you had a nation, if you were powerful enough and wealthy enough to be able to rule the world, they at least attributed that to something divine. However, their power was what? Their own. Babylon. And you say, well, Greg, you know, Israel certainly didn't believe that. Oh, not true at all. Not true at all. Why do you think the first thing that God has to tell Moses to promise Israel in order to just kind of prove that he is a God and powerful, he has to promise them that he's going to remove them from their slavery and take them where? To their own land. If God would have said, no, I'm not gonna give you any land. I want you to just trust me and you will just be aliens your entire lives and and you'll never become a nation. You'll never have land. Do you think person one, slave one, would walk out of that captivity into that? By the way, I think it's what God has in mind. Anywhere with Jesus is fine with me. I'll live in exile. How about you? I'll live in the wilderness. We say that, right? So you with me? Israel believed that. Here's the best way that I can describe it. Um, the kingdom of Aram in, in 2 Kings 5 is, is a neighboring nation of Israel, and they probably, they've had several skirmishes. And this captain, Naaman, is, is second in command to the king of Aram, and he contracts leprosy. Somewhere in the, in the annals of, of the, him probably attacking, he somehow acquired a little Hebrew slave girl. See, and leprosy to an Aramite, obviously, is the same that it is to every uh, Bible people. It's a message of doom. There's nothing that will help this, nothing absolutely at all. He is writing his will when that little girl comes in and says, I know somebody who can do something about that. And who's she talking about? During the time of Elisha, it's Elisha the prophet, it's himself. And Naaman said, if, and, and, and he goes and he's, and he's, and he's cured. He, it's, it, it's a funny story, but I don't have time to get into it. But he goes and tells him to wash in the Jordan. He does it and he's cleansed, right? Completely cleansed. First thing he tries to do is to pay Elisha for it. Remember, he brought a whole uh, caravan full of reward. Elisha said, no, by the way, by the way, isn't that perfect description of the divine power of Babylon? If I have enough what? I could buy his favor. This God has given Naaman his life back, 
Naaman feels he has to what? I got to pay him for it. By the way, that reward came from Aram himself. If he doesn't, he insults the entire nation of Israel. But Elisha says what? Keep it. In fact, Elisha's not very nice about it at all. You know, he just says, keep it. I don't need that, right? This is what Naaman says next. If not, then, okay, so you won't take my reward. Let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer what? Burnt offerings and sacrifice to any God, but who? But the God of Israel. See, but he couldn't do that without some of the land. I go back to Aram and I pray to this God. I'm praying to no God because I'm not on the land that he gave. You see how tied it is with the human understanding of divine and power and land and nation? That's how powerful it is. That's how strong it is. He can't worship this new God without some of the land that he gave his children. That's what he wants. It's what he has. And if you don't think that Israel believed in this, There's a psalm that sings lament to the very first days of the captivity. A song, Psalm 137. And it says, on the rivers, on the banks of the rivers of Babylon, we weep when we remember remember Jerusalem. And their captors torment them. They torment them. They say, sing a song of, of the God of Israel. Why are they tormenting them with, sing a song of the God of Israel? Because as soon as they sing praise to that God of Israel, they are there to remind them that that God of Israel was nothing. That our God, Nebuchadnezzar, walked right into his temple, took every object of worship out of it, burned it to the ground, and here you are. And since the land is gone, And since the temple is gone, their lament is this. And what does it say? How could we sing the Lord's song in where? In a foreign land. Babylon's power, not just in the end time, but all the way back to the land of Shinar, has been enforcing a religious or divine power, if you will, and bringing it together with the kingdom of this world's enforcers. All the way back to Shinar, it's a mixture of church and what? And state. Land, nation, and God has labeled it all the way back as what? Babylon. It's the one power that God's people, no matter what generation, can't have anything to do with. God says, I won't use any of this power to try to get people to worship me. You, my children who belong in my church, you won't do it either. So the second angel says, fallen, fallen is what? Is Babylon the great? You and I have been living in the end time since we were born. How's this power doing? Is it weak? Is it stumbling? Is it failing? It isn't, is it? Does it rule? It does. 
So all he's asking us to do is to ask what he asked Daniel. We don't live in the time where Babylon actually falls. We live in the time where he pronounces it fallen. We live in the as if. One of the reasons why God's children cannot uh, even just a little bit elicit the power of Babylon, elicit the power of church and state, or however you want to put it, elicit the, the force of the kingdom of the earth with the love of the kingdom of the world. The reason that they can't mix at all is because the angel is telling us you can't, you can't ask for power from something that has no power. Babylon has fallen. They said, don't even bother. However, every time the church has opened up the door to do it, the church is what? It's thrived. It grows. If you're going to use the methods of, of, of this planet, the church of the first beast, they turned missionary, they armed missionaries with swords. It got it done, didn't it? Protestants did the same thing towards the end. Our study of the last 17 weeks showed that there's a new force with a new coat of paint. The second beast is doing it again, isn't it? It's thriving. But God's children lives in the as if. We live in exile here. Babylon rules here. Are you with me? Babylon rules here. You and I are exiles. And what he says to the exiles is live as if Babylon has fallen. Why? Because it has. She has, he says. She has. So we live by faith that that power has fallen the same way that we were supposed to be living by faith in the first place. Remember, before he even began this, the people that he's talking to, it's these people who've not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. These follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from the humankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. These people don't go looking for redemption in their works or their deeds. It is not somewhere in the distant future. Their faith says you are redeemed. Your faith says you are not defiled at all because he died to make sure that whatever sin we could commit, that we would be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. The only faith that we need to prove, that, to, to prove to ourselves that Babylon has fallen is the faith that we're supposed to have in the first place. We're living as exiles. This doesn't actually uh, uh, pan out, does it? Is this our reality? Remember what he said? After this, I looked, the only other that describes, the only other verse that describes the 144,000 is back in chapter seven. This was going back to our opening sermon. After this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, robed in what? robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches, even if you can't speak a palm branch in Israel's time was Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the message says that everybody belongs. That all of the barriers that, that, that the, the fallen world, that the false church, all of the barriers that they throw up, tribes, ethnicity, skin color, language, economic disparity, doesn't matter. 
we're all called where? To wear the robe. And what is the robe? His righteousness. Not one we earned, not one that's off in a distant future. The reality is, is that you and I struggle every day. The reality is that all have fallen short and, fa- and, and uh, fall short, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is our reality. But there's another reality, the as if reality. Live as if you are this. Why? Because your faith says that you are. If he says so, we are. That same faith then opens up and says, look, the reality is Babylon's in control. He who has the most toys does win. He who has the most power is able to separate, is able to keep out, is able to to make sure that nobody ever partakes. But you live in the as if. It's fallen. Don't, don't try to put your faith in it. That's why I picked the scripture reading that I picked at. The reality is that all of us once lived among the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses. We were by nature children of wrath like who? Like everybody else. That's our reality, right? That's who we are. How many here have conquered their human nature completely? That you are completely defiled on your own right now? Any hands? No one. Boy, am I glad. Because we'd have to stop and have a conversation, right? But there's another reality. There's the as if that you and I are asked to live in as if it's reality. Why? Because it is reality. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us live together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places. The reality is we're here, still with fallen natures, struggling with them, yes, coming always to him for forgiveness and atonement every day, but also the reality is you're not even here. If you believe that he was killed and raised up for our sins, then you're with him. When he died, we died. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected. We are asked to live in the as if. And the as if applies to our redemption and our atonement as much as it applies to Babylon being fallen. This is who we are. See, they worshiped the dragon for he'd given authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast. Who is like the beast? Reality is Babylon's in charge and they have a message. Who is like the beast? No one can come to it. The whole world wonders after the beast. They're saying every day, you wanna keep score? We got you beat. Scoreboard, y'all. We have more people. We have more money. We're getting bigger and stronger every day. And the reason is, is because we keep people out based on all kinds of things. We preach hate where God did not preach hate. Babylon perfectly, perfectly gets at that sinful nature and then makes it divine. See, I shared this uh, in prayer meeting once. Me as a father, as a human father, I could, 
I could confess to some things. I could say, yes, I believe and, and be hard on my kids and discipline my kids. It's one thing for me to be completely hard on my kids and be nothing but a taskmaster, nothing but disciplined. That's fine. That's, that's what I've been allowed to do. That's what every one of us has been allowed to do with our children. And probably a lot of us have regrets for how hard we were on them. But sometimes maybe we have regrets for how easy we were on them. But we have regrets, don't we? But that's fine because we're parents. I cross the line though, I cross the line when I do it and I tell my kids, this is how God feels about you. Now I've crossed the line from what could be simple abuse, simple, what could be abuse on a human standpoint and I now make it spiritual abuse. And how much harder did I just make it on my kids to believe in a God that I tried to convince them loved him? The reality is Babylon is winning. And Babylon will always look like she's winning. You and I live in the as if. No. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Not that it's going to fall. By the way, if we're waiting around, waiting for Babylon to fall while we can still live and, and be uh, dominant on this planet, guess what? Nope. And it can't fall in the future because the angel says it fell now. It's fallen. You could debate as to when, but I would say the debate is, is pretty much the answer to everything in, in time and how we should uh, gauge our message um, and, uh, based by a date, and that is at the cross. It is finished. So you and I live in the as if. You and I live in the as if it's finished. As if Babylon has fallen. As if you are perfectly undefiled and in Christ's righteousness, if you would simply believe that. That's why the second angel message is no different than the first one. You are. We are. And he or she, I'm sorry, she has truly fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Second angel's message. Thanks for holding on with me.